The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 10. The tenth verse in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, I'm not proposing this morning to preach on that verse in and of itself, but I've read it because it is an introduction to the section that begins at this point and runs on more or less to the very end of the letter. In other words, we are resuming our studies in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And incidentally, for the sake of those who delight in statistics, we are doing so for the 190th time. Now, here, clearly, we are looking at the beginning of a new section. We have repeatedly, in working our way through this mighty epistle, emphasized these divisions, these points of new and of fresh departure. And it's very important that we should do so. I know of nothing that is so fascinating as to observe the apostle's method, to watch him, to watch the working of his mind, to see the logical order and the procession in the thought. It is indeed to me not only instructive, but extremely moving. There are people who delight in analyzing great works of art and great works of music, symphonies, and so on, well, it's all right, it's a very good thing to do. It's a great thing always to follow and to observe a mastermind or a genius operating. Well, if you're interested in that sort of thing, I can assure you there is nothing which is in any way comparable to the observing and the following of the operations of the mind of this mighty man. It was a great natural mind, of course, but over and above that, you've got here the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You've got human ability raised almost to its zenith. And it is, I say, a very wonderful thing. And we're reminded of that as we look at this word finally this morning. Well now, this word, of course, must uh, uh, needs, uh, first of all, engage uh, our attention. Because uh, we must be quite clear as to the meaning of this word. Finally, my brethren, he says. What does he mean by finally? Is he just uh, saying more or less, well, uh, now then I've uh, come to the end of my letter. I've really said um, all that I intended uh, to say. Does it, does it just mean that? Is it just an indication that the letter is about to end? Well, of course, in a sense it is. It is. You can't, uh, we can't dispute the fact that it is indicative of the fact that the apostle is about to end his letter. But, if we regard it merely as that, we shall, as I trust and I shall be able to show you, we shall miss uh, the real point of what's being said here. No, this is not just a kind of postscript. And if we regard it as that, as I say, we've missed its real value. It isn't an afterthought. It isn't that he'd, as it were, said all he'd got to say and finished his letter. And there are, ah, remember, there's just one other thing. To regard it like that, I say, is to miss the whole point. In other words, there is a very direct connection 
between what he begins to say here and what he goes on to say and what he has just been saying. Indeed, uh, I go further. There is a direct and an immediate connection between this and the whole of the epistle up until this point. Now, that is one of those things which uh, I had in my mind in referring, as I've been doing, to the style of the apostle. He carries the whole case right through to the end, and when he comes to this, it's just something that is yet a further statement with regard uh, to that. So it's most important, therefore, that uh, we should uh, really get uh, this tremendous statement that's introduced here into its uh, true and right and uh, proper setting. What is it? Well, let me hurriedly again remind you of the major themes, sections of this great epistle. Speaking generally, we can say of the first three chapters that the apostle there is uh, reminding these Ephesians and reminding us through them of the great doctrines, the fundamental postulates of the Christian faith. He is just uh, letting them know who they are, what they are, and how they have become what they are. That's his theme. You will find all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in those first three chapters. Of course, he has his own way of putting them before us. What he's out to do especially is this, is to give a picture of the glory of the Christian life, the exalted character of this life. You remember how he works up to that in the second half of the third chapter, where he says some almost incredible things. He says that he's praying for these people that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it reminds them that God is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now, there you see is a great picture of the, what the Christian is. He's told us how we become Christians. It's by the blood of Christ. It was God's great plan in eternity, he tells us in the first chapter. Christ came, it's being worked out. Jews came in, Gentiles came in. And there it is. We are together in this new body, this new man. But what he wants them to understand above everything is the privileges that belong to such a life. So he has prayed in that first chapter that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know what, well, what is the hope of your calling? What is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints? And the exceeding greatness of his power to usward that believe. He says, you know, if you only realized that, if you only knew this power that's working in you, if we only realized, in other words, the exalted character of what he again calls our high calling, the whole situation would be transformed. Very well, he takes three chapters to bring them face to face with that. Then having done that, he now begins to appeal to them and plead with them to live in a manner that is worthy of all that. That's the apostolic method, you see. You don't just start with morality and behavior. No, no, you have this grand context. No man can ever live the Christian life until he's a Christian, until he knows what it is to be a Christian, until he's got some conception of the glory of the Christian position. 
Though he therefore goes on and says, well, in the light of all this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And in a sense, from there to the very end of the epistle, he's just making this great and grand appeal. Now, we derived great pleasure, at least I did, I trust you all did who heard it, in noticing how even having started on that, he still couldn't leave his doctrine, because there in chapter 4, in those first 16 verses, you've got one of the most wonderful expositions of the nature of the Christian church that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. But having dealt with that, at verse 17, in chapter 4, he again comes right back to this matter of the practical application. This, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, etc., etc. No, no. You, he says, have got to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and in holiness. In other words, what he does is this. He says, now I've, I've reminded you of what you are and how you've become that. Now, he says, I want you to see that it's a pure matter of logic and of application to see that in the light of that you've got to live a very definite kind of life. He says, you have been born again. You are not like those other Gentiles you once were, but you're no longer that. Well, you don't go on living as if you were still that. It's inconsistent. It's irrational. So he reminds them that they're born again and therefore that they must show it in their lives. He reminds them also that the Holy Spirit dwells in them. He doesn't dwell in other people. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in those who are not Christians. But because, he says, he does dwell in you. Well, you must manifest that, obviously. You mustn't grieve the Spirit. And then he says, you are dear children of God. The others are not children of God. You only become a child of God in Christ Jesus. God's made everybody. Sometimes the term is used to mean that. But in the New Testament sense, to be children of God is something that is given to us. Authority is given to us, as John puts it, to become the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says, because you are God's dear children, well, you don't behave as other children. There's something special about you. And you show this in your constant demeanor. And then, finally, he reminds them that they are light. He says, you were sometimes darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. You've come from those underground caverns in which the children of iniquity dwell and spend their time and have their conversation. You've come out into God's daylight, into the broad sunshine. Well, he says, don't go groping about in the dark, but live as children of the light, glorifying your Father. Then you remember that having finished that, we came to that new section beginning at verse 18 in chapter 5, where he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And that introduced that glorious section that runs from that 18th verse in chapter 5 to the 9th verse of chapter 6. This is what he does, you remember? He says, Look here, you can be filled with the Spirit of God. And as you are filled with that spirit, he says, you're going to live in a way that nobody else can live. His point is that unless we are filled with the spirit, we can never live like that. And you remember how he worked it out. He said, if you're filled with the spirit, 
When you meet together in your church, why, he said, there'll be great praise and thanksgiving, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture of the Christian church and what a contrast to what is so often seen today. The church is meant to be filled with the Spirit and she shows it partly in that way. And then he goes on to say that we are all to be subject one to another and especially, you remember, he works it out in three main respects. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. Children are to be subject to their parents. Servants are to be subject to their masters. But he always puts the other side. The husband is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Do you remember that? That extraordinary description of marriage. What an exalted thing it is. What a holy thing. What a wonderful thing. All in terms of being filled with the Spirit. You can't get that, you know, in anybody except a Christian. But every Christian husband and wife should be manifesting that they're filled with the Spirit. And they should be an astonishment to the world that's outside. Likewise, children and parents. It's the exact opposite of what we're witnessing today. It's not lawlessness, but it's honoring father and mother. And the father and the mother, they don't provoke their children to wrath. No, no, because they're filled with the Spirit, there is this understanding, this tolerance, this patience, and everything that is necessary. And the same with the masters and servants, and servants with masters. He always, you remember, puts the two sides. He tells the servants who were slaves in those days how they behave. He tells the masters also to remember that their master also is in heaven and there is no respect of persons with him. And so he is worked out in these respects, the commonest experiences of life, how one lives and manifests this life in the spirit. And then, you see, having done all that, he takes it up here and says, finally, my brethren, now then, this is not a, a something entirely different. It's a continuation of it. As if to say, now in the light of all this I've been telling you about yourselves and the kind of life that you've got to live, now then, here you are, you see it. Is that all? No, he says, there's still one other matter. And that is the matter that he here now introduces for our consideration. Very well then, here is the way I say to approach this whole matter. He cannot stop at the point at which he's arrived at the end of the ninth verse in chapter 6. Why? Well, for this reason. That we don't live this kind of Christian life in a vacuum. It isn't just a matter, well, there it is for you, now go and do that. No, no, there is another matter that we've got to consider. There is another factor that in a sense he's not mentioned yet. What is that? Well, that is the mighty opposition to Christian living, which we all inevitably will encounter in this world of time. Now, that's the thing that he's introducing here. He's uh, reminded us of what we are. He's shown us the possibilities. There is no limit. There is no end. That he might be filled with all the fullness of God. That he might apprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. 
That's it. There's no limit to it. Oh, you say it's wonderful. Wait a minute, says Paul. Let me remind you that you're going to live that kind of life in a world in which there is a tremendous power working against you. There is a terrible conflict with the devil and all his forces. And if you don't realize that, he says, and take the appropriate action with respect to it, you will undoubtedly and inevitably be defeated. So he's got, I say, to introduce this. So finally, doesn't just mean, well, now that I've said this, that, and the other, ah, one or the, not at all. It's a part of the whole picture. It's a vital part of the picture. So that we might very well translate the word translated here finally as wherefore, or henceforth, or for the rest. Doesn't matter which of those terms that we employ. Now then, we've got the setting which is provided by this word finally. It isn't enough to know all that he's told us about this life. We've got to accept and realize what he's now about to say to us. It's still a part of the whole picture. Now, obviously, all I can do this morning in the time at our disposal is to introduce this great subject. It will involve us uh, for a number of Sunday mornings. It's a great and a profound matter that is introduced in this section. And what I'm anxious to do this morning particularly is to divide up the section to show you the divisions of the matter in order that we may have the picture clearly in our minds. And then I'll try to make some few general comments on it before we proceed on subsequent Sundays to the detailed analysis. Now, how, how do you divide this section starting at verse uh, 10 and going on roughly to verse 20, 19 or 20? At this point, I find myself in a little difficulty. It, it's, it's not vital to the truth, but uh, there is, as many of you know, that famous work on this section by William Gurnall, great Puritan who lived 300 years ago, a Christian in complete armor, that massive volume that is fortunately again available in this country. Gurnall's Christian in complete armor. It's a great classic which has given food for the soul to countless thousands of Christian pilgrims during the last 300 years. Now, to my uh, disappointment and almost dismay, I cannot accept William Gurnall's division of the matter. This is, in a sense, a mechanical point, and yet it seems to me to be of importance. Gurnall divides it up like this. He says there are two main sections here. The first is verse 10 itself. Verse 10 alone. That's section 1. Then section 2, he says, are verses 11 to 20. And he puts it like this. He says, section 1, verse 10, a short but sweet and powerful encouragement to this Christian warfare. A short but sweet and powerful encouragement to this Christian warfare. Section 2, verses 11 to 20. Here he says, uh, we have several directions for uh, their managing this war the more successfully, with some motives here and there sprinkled among them. You see how he does it, verse 10, 
Here he says is a short but sweet and powerful encouragement to us in this Christian warfare. Then from 11 to 20 we have several directions for us uh, to teach us how to manage this war the more successfully with some motives here and there sprinkled among them. Now, I, I, I really cannot accept that division and I suggest to you a better one. I would suggest that you divide it like this. Again, I agree there are two sections, but the first section is from verse 10 to verse 13. Verse 10 to verse 13. What do we got there? Well, there we have a general exhortation. The second section, verses 14 to 20, detailed instructions with regard to the general exhortation. That seems to me to be the natural and almost inevitable division. The general, the particular. Because in verse 14, he clearly is taking up what he said in general, and he's now going to put it in particular. Stand, therefore, having your loins, your loins that's the first particular, girt about with truth, breast, breastplate of right, and so on. 14 onwards is the detailed application of what he said in general in the first section, verses 10 to 13. But let us subdivide this first section. In verses 10 to 13, you have what I'm calling a general exhortation, or what would be still better described as a call to battle. I can't quite understand how Gurnall can introduce the word sweet here. Sweet, he says. He does have powerful, I admit, a short but sweet and powerful encouragement. Well, it's the power that strikes me. It's a call to battle. A great exhortation. A tremendous call to battle. But now he divides that up. First he tells us how to prepare ourselves for this battle. And there, there are two subsections. One, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The second, verse 11, and again repeated in verse 13 for emphasis, put on the whole armor of God. And as it's repeated, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. You see the idea? Call to battle. Very well. One, how do I prepare for the battle? And there is the answer. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. But then he also does something which is quite invariable with him and in the scriptures everywhere. He tells us why we need such a preparation. Now, that's the great thing about the scripture. It never tells you to do a thing without telling you why. Why should I be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? Why is it absolutely essential that I should put on not a bit here and there, but the whole armor of God? Here's the answer. Again, subdivided. First, in verse 11, he says, you'd better put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. And you notice that he elaborates that in verse 12. Verse 12 is nothing but an elaboration of the wiles of the devil. Why should I put on the whole armor, says somebody? Why should I be careful that I am strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? Here's your answer, my friend. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or in heavenly places. That's why you need it all. And you're a fool if you don't realize it and put it all on. You are confronted, he says, by that kind of enemy and opposition. But also, secondly, he says that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Withstand in the evil day. Life is always a battle, but there are some days which are worse than others. There are evil days. You sometimes sense it when you wake up in the morning, don't you, as if everything's going to go wrong. It's an evil day and the devil seems to be busy following you everywhere, threatening you, taunting you, jeering at you, mocking you, throwing things at you. These fiery darts of the wicked one that he talks about and which we shall have to examine later on. Well, there are evil days, my friends, and a man who doesn't realize that there are is certain to be defeated. If you want to be able to stand in the evil day, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, take unto you the whole armor of God. You'll need it all. And then, as if to drive it right home to us, he says, and having done all, to stand. It's a great thing to be able to stand in a world like this. People are falling right and left everywhere. You see it in the world this morning. You see it, alas, in the church. The great thing is to be able to stand. There's your reason. And this is the only way whereby anybody can stand. Well, now, there's our analysis of that first section, which I'm calling a general exhortation or a call to battle. And then in his second section, he proceeds to give us the detailed instructions. And he doesn't take any risks, you see. A good teacher never takes anything for granted. He says, now, are you all right? Are you starting with your loins, your breastplate, your feet, head, everything? It's every part has got to be catered for, so he takes them through in detail. He doesn't stop at a general instruction. He proceeds to a detailed instruction as to how every part is to be guarded and safeguarded. Well, now, that, it seems to me, is a better uh, division of this important and great section. It seems to me to be quite wrong to put uh, verses 10 and 11 in different sections, as Gurnall does, you see. He puts, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might in one section. He puts, uh, put on the whole armor of God in another section, which seems to me to be quite foolish. These two things go together. Strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Well, in order that you may be able to use this armor. The armor would crush you. You wouldn't be able to walk in it unless you had this strength and power of God. But he doesn't leave you with the power and strength of God alone. No, no. You need that and the armor, and then you're able to stand. It's wrong to separate verses 10 and 11, and that is my main reason for rejecting the division of the matter that is suggested by the famous William Gurnall. Don't be put off Gurnall by just a mechanical matter like that. It's a rich and a rewarding book. I advise you all to get hold of it and to read it and to go on quietly with it during the months of this winter and for the rest of your lives. However, there then, it seems to me, is the division of this section. Now then, I think we've got the picture in our minds, haven't we? I've got to realize who I am and what I am. 
And I've got to know and to understand that if I realize that it's inevitable that I should be anxious to live in a manner that is worthy of this. When you go away to a foreign country, you remember you're a Britisher and you don't let your country down. You should be careful of your conduct for that reason. Something that we apply everywhere in life. Children are told to behave themselves at parties. Why? They're the representatives of the family. And it's the same with us. Very well, but he says, you know, that isn't enough. You've got to realize this other thing. And you've got to be prepared for it. Now, there's the big message. Let us uh, this morning, therefore, content ourselves with making just some general comments about all this before we come to the detailed treatment. Take, for instance, this uh, question of the relationship of this section to all that has gone before. Somebody may say, well, now, in what respect is this different from what he's been already telling us? Well, that's a very good question and an important one. And the difference, it seems to me, is this. That up until this point, he has been dealing with the Christian life mainly in terms of uh, the conflict we have with the world that is round and about us and with the flesh. You see, he knows that these people, though they're Christians, have still got something of the old nature in them. There is sin still left in the body, in the flesh. And uh, so far he's rarely been dealing with that. It's something we've got to realize. It's something we've got to deal with. There is an enemy within. There is this lurking power that's always ready to take control of our, of our flesh and, as Paul puts it in writing to the Romans, to reign in our mortal body. Now, that's what he's been dealing with in a sense so far. Well, what does he do now? Oh, now he's dealing with this enemy, as it were, that's outside us. The devil and his forces. He really hasn't touched with it on that so far. But verse 12, you see, puts us on to the difference immediately. For we wrestle, he says, not, not only, he means, against flesh and blood. We do have to wrestle against flesh and blood, but not only, but also against these principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there is the essential difference between what he's going to deal with and what he has been dealing with. Now, we mustn't press this into an absolute distinction, because it isn't. It is a very vital distinction in thought, but it isn't an absolute distinction in practice. I mean this, that the devil does work in us and can work in us through our bodies, through our instincts. The devil can make use of anything. I shall be pointing that out to you, how he can even produce illnesses and sicknesses and depression and misery. The devil can do all this within. So we mustn't make it an absolute division. And yet it is a very real division. In other words, we must never forget the devil. We must never forget the principalities and powers. I must never just think that my whole problem is that which is within me and other people. No, no. Over and above is this other mighty, mightiest of all powers apart from God himself. And not to remember that, I say, is to court certain defeat and disaster. And you know, my friends, the great trouble in the world today and in the church, unfortunately, is that it knows so little about the devil and the principalities and powers. 
So much holiness and sanctification teaching never mention the devil and these powers at all. They regard it all as something within myself. Hence their total inadequacy. The devil, these forces and powers that the apostle here introduces and which he emphasizes in such stirring language. That's the relationship. But then as I've been hinting already, this section is really of vital importance in connection with the whole question and problem of the biblical doctrine of sanctification and of holiness. It is in many ways a crucial passage with regard to that doctrine. But one, as I've said, which is curiously and strangely forgotten and utterly neglected. But here it is. What does it tell us? Well, let me give you some headings for your meditation. The Christian life in the first place is a warfare, is a struggle. We wrestle. The whole section is to impress upon us the fact that it is a fight and a warfare and a struggle. There is no grosser or greater misrepresentation of the Christian message than that which depicts it and offers it to us as a life of ease with no battle and no struggle at all. There are types of holiness teaching that do that. Their slogan is, it's quite easy. They say the trouble is so many Christian people don't realize that and there they are fighting and struggling. They say it's quite easy. Life of ease. Of course, that's the characteristic always of the cults. That is why the cults are always so popular. You see, the characteristic of a cult is that it says, now, just come along. This is all you've got to do. It's quite simple. It's quite All will be well. And people, we all desire something like that. We all feel a great appeal at once. All the problems solved. Everything made good. No more struggle, no more battle, no more difficulty. Quite easy. Life of ease. You can't fit that into this section, can you? We wrestle. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God. That he may be able to stand. No, no. The first thing we've got to realize is that this Christian life is a warfare. We are strangers in an alien land. We're in the enemy's territory, my friends. We don't live, I say, in a vacuum, in a glass house. No, no, and that kind of Christianity that gives you the impression that it's all easy and simple and smooth, it's not Christianity, it's not Paul's Christianity, it's not New Testament Christianity. That's the hallmark of the cult. It's the quack remedy always. Cures everything. One dose, all over. Doesn't matter what it is. Just take this, all will be well. It's the hallmark, the great characteristic of the false, the spurious that is ever offering itself to us. It's not here. Secondly, this is a warfare that you and I have to wage. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You've got to be strong. Take unto you, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand. 
and having done all to stand, take unto you the whole armor of God. Stand therefore, you. It's not only a warfare, it's a warfare that you and I have to wage. Now, my dear friends, let's be clear about this. There is a teaching which says this to us, isn't there? They say, no, you know, Christian people, you've been making a great mistake. You've been trying to fight this battle. You must stop doing it. They say there's only one thing to do. Hand it over to the Lord and all will be well. Hand it over to the Lord. He'll fight it for you. Well, if you can fit that into this teaching, you're able to do something that I can't do. I don't find the apostle here telling me to hand it all over to the Lord and that he'll fight my battles for me and I'll just sit back and enjoy the fruit of his victory. It's not here. I've got to fight. You know, the other way that teaching is put sometimes is this. Let go, let God. You let go, they say. You've been holding on to, you've been trying. Let go, let God. It's all right, you'll have victory, you'll be happy ever after. It's all is quite simple, they say, no effort. But surely what we are reading here is the very reverse of that. It's the exact opposite of that. It is you and I who've got to do the fighting. Thank God we are given strength and power and armaments. But we do it. I don't lie on a bed of roses while another is doing this. I'm shod, I'm clad, I'm covered, I'm given everything. And I'm given the power to use them. I'm doing it though. I'm called to do it. I don't relax and just look on and reap the fruits of the victory of another. No, no. He makes me more than conqueror. But it is my battle and I have to wage the battle. These things are fundamental principles in connection with the doctrine of sanctification. And I believe that much of the condition of the Christian church today is due to the fact that this false teaching has come in instead of this true biblical teaching. This is the biblical teaching. But thirdly, I'm anxious to stress this morning the way in which we are called to this battle. This to me is a very wonderful thing. Do you notice the way in which he puts the call? This general instruction or general exhortation, I say, I refer to it as a call to battle. Now, that's Christianity. The other teaching to which I've been referring is, likes to say that uh, what the message really is is an invitation to come to a clinic. They say you're spiritually ill and you're spiritually wounded and you're spiritually defeated. They say there is a clinic for you and here are medicaments that will soothe you and uh, help to heal your wounds and you will feel better. A clinic. My dear friends, there's no clinic here. Or let me put it in another way. There's nothing sentimental here. I would lay it down as a fundamental definition that if any teaching concerning holiness and sanctification is sentimental, it is not scriptural. There is a book, there's a whole series of books which are betrayed, it seems to me, by their very title. You may have seen them, you may have read some of them. It says, Quiet Talks on Power. Quiet Talks on Power. Now that's the sort of thing I'm trying to put you, which is not found here. You see, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? You, you can't have a quiet talk on power. You can't have a quiet talk on Niagara. You can't have a quiet talk on the explosion of an atomic bomb. Quiet talks on power. It's sentimental. 
It's flabby. It's weak. That isn't what we have here. Dare I go further and say this? Surely nothing has done so much harm to the true doctrine of sanctification as what are generally described in quotation marks as devotional talks. It's a part of this same nice, quiet, devotional talks with simple, affecting little illustrations. My dear friends, this isn't what the apostle is talking about. We've got here the exact opposite. What have we got here? Well, we've got a martial atmosphere. We've got a rousing, stimulating call. It's a trumpet call. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Don't you hear the bugle? Don't you hear the trumpet? It's a call to battle. We are being roused. We are being stimulated. We are being set upon our feet. We are told to be men. The apostle indeed puts it like that in writing to the Corinthians. You remember 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Listen to it. Quit you like men. Stand ye in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Now, don't misunderstand me about this. But this is the atmosphere, and it's important we should catch it. As I put it once before, this is not the atmosphere of a clinic. It's a barracks. It's a parade ground, such as you have across the road there in Wellington Barracks. And I see men standing in rank when the bugle call has gone, the trumpet has sounded, and they're being addressed. They've been reminded of certain things. The whole tone is martial, it's manly, it's strong. Not a quiet talk, but a trumpet blast. A mighty call to battle. It's an order for the day. As men are facing the most terrific and awful conflict that men and women can ever know. In other words, I end by putting it to you like this. What we've got here is a call to put an end to our grumbling and complaining. To put an end once and forever to all this self-pity. To put an end once and forever to all this enumeration of our particular problems and weaknesses and difficulties and this perpetual talking about ourselves. Stop it, says the apostle. Stand up and be a man. There's your enemy. Stop with these trifling things. See that you're confronting not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's how the New Testament preaches holiness and sanctification. Not nice, polite, devotional, quiet talks on power and prayer. Not a bit of it. But a stirring called to put away a craven, cowardly spirit and to be men and to stand fully armed with the whole armor of God. Shake off that dull sloth and melancholy. Realize the glory of the battle in which you're engaged and the privilege of even having a part in it at all. Realize who your captain is who's leading you on and in whose name you're fighting and for whose kingdom you are striving. That's what we've got here. And thank God for it. Oh, I believe there are many outside the church today because they say, you know, you Christian people, you're weak, you're flabby, you're sentimentalist, you're namby-pamby. There's no manliness, there's no power, there's no grit about you. What a travesty all that is. There is nothing in God's universe this morning that is to be as strong and as noble and as wonderful and valorous 
as the Christian men. Well, very well then, I say, these are the points for us to hold in our minds. How do we actually wage this war, number four? Well, you don't just hand it over. You don't just pray. There are people who say that, oh, you've got nothing to do, just pray about it. No, no. But on the other hand, you mustn't be defeatist. You mustn't rely on your willpower either. Well, what do you do? Well, you realize, he says, the truth concerning the power that is against you. Measure your enemy first and then realize your own resources, the power of God and the power of this armor. And then go on in the fifth place to realize this, that there's nothing slick and quick and easy about all this. You've got to go on doing it piecemeal. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. You don't just do one thing and all is right. No, no. He gives us all these details and it takes time to work them out. There's nothing slick and quick and ready-made about this. You've got to work it out in detail. And finally, you've got to go on doing it. There is no discharge in this war. While you and I are alive in this world, the devil will be there with all his evil and malignity. And he'll fight us to the end. He'll fight us on our deathbed. Is this hopeless? Hopeless? It's the reverse. It's glorious. We are having the privilege of following in our Lord and Master's footsteps. As he was in this world, so are we. It's a mighty conflict, yes. But I can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I can be clothed with the whole armor of God. Christian people, are we ready for the battle? Are you on the alert? Are you on your feet? Are you just indulging your weaknesses and whims and fancies and pitting yourself and grumbling and complaining about this, that and the other? I say, rise up. Shake them off. Stand on your feet, be a man. Realize that you're a member of this mighty regiment of God fighting the battle of the Lord and destined to enjoy the glorious fruits of victory throughout the countless ages of eternity. Have you heard the trumpet call this morning? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Well, God willing, we shall proceed to try to work out some of these things in detail. Amen.